um, I'm John King, I'm um, uh, part of the Society for Algerian Studies, which again is partly responsible for organising this event. Um, um, we're very grateful to you all for coming on such what promises to be such a terrible night. Uh, it sounded to me when I left the house a little bit like the hurricane of 1980, whatever it was, but my wife said it's nothing like that. I, uh, I was just being a wolf, so I, I wasn't in London and I don't, don't remember how, how bad it was. Um, our speaker, who has come from Leicester, is Rabah Aisawi, who is a senior lecturer in French. Um, his research interests focus on immigration and racism in colonial and post-colonial France, and I know from experience of his previous contributions over ooh, almost 15 years, perhaps the first time was, to this society that he's been, he's been patiently disentangling the Byzantine politics of, uh, of pre-independence Algeria um, to considerable effect. Um, um, he's also interested in theoretical questions to do with the construction of nationalism and tonight as you know he's going to speak about the French view on all this, colonial control in Algeria, the French security and intelligence services between the two world wars. Thank you, Thank you John. Well firstly I'd like to, uh, to thank uh, John and uh, the Society of Algerian Studies but also the LSE Emilie Center uh, for inviting me and for giving me the opportunity of presenting some of the, the work I'm currently doing. Uh, as I mentioned to Daniel before, uh, I'd like first to apologize for the fact that this is very much work in progress. As John mentioned, I've worked uh, over the last few years on um, the, uh, the emergence of nationalism and nationalist discourse amongst migrants. And I've, uh, written a book on this and now I'm more interested in the um, uh, development of Algerian nationalism from the second half of the 1930s onwards in Algeria but also on the French perspective particularly those <coughs> perspective on uh, nationalist movements and various other political movements that uh, were uh, very active in this, in, during this period so I'm working on archives at the moment and uh, I'm sure you'll identify some, some gaps and I'm more than happy to you know, discuss you know, various issues you may wish to raise in relation to this paper because it will help me I think take uh, the argument forward uh, over the next, uh, the next few months. Um, I'd like first to uh, check that the PowerPoint presentation is working. I need to do escape and then that's it. Okay, uh, I decided to call to entitle this paper uh, Colonial Control in Algeria. Uh, I will be able to provide you know, clear answers uh, at this stage. Hopefully, in the year's time, I'll be much more advanced on, on this research, but I was really interested in the ways in which the attempts by the French authorities at the, during this key period were able or attempted to um, um, establish a policy of divide and rule among the various um, political organizations, uh, including the nationalists as well as the, the more reformist organizations. So this is the, the theme of, of my paper. On the eve of the Second World War, France saw its imperial mission uh, as playing an increasingly important role in its self-perception as a nation and as a significant power on the world stage. In this context, the authorities were determined to maintain their control of Algeria as their most prized colonial possession. France's so-called prépondérance in Algeria was established through the imposition and maintenance of a highly racialized 
segregated social, cultural, political, and economic order. Drawing on, on Paul Guerroy, I would argue that uh, Algeria was to some extent a camp with its specific symbolic organization of space, place, and political community. At the core of colonial policy was a rigid system of surveillance of the colonized that aimed to maintain France's continued presence in Algeria. So this paper examines the role played by the colonial authorities and more specifically the French security services in the system of control and surveillance put in place during that period. In effect, the rise of Algerian nationalism in the interwar period led to important shifts in the intelligence gathering process, shifts that were to have long-term consequences on the ways in which security services operated uh, in, in the colony, although it was not officially classified as a colony. This study discusses some aspects of the development of Algerian nationalist politics, as well as key changes made to the French security services at the time. It assess how the services were reorganized and how they operated in the interwar period and during the Second World War as the French attempted to counter the rise of nationalism both in metropolitan France and in Algeria. It seeks to establish how this evolution uh, observed in the methods used to infiltrate and gather intelligence were internally justified by those same very uh, security services. It also examines the manner in which the work of those security services was marked by internal political tensions and also by changes in the way the colonial administration operated in Algeria. I'd like first to focus on the first section, which uh, I entitled The Perceived Threat of Algerian Nationalism. What the French authorities considered to be their knowledge of the Algerians was largely informed by the polarity of the colonial order. In colonial discourse, uh, a dichotomy was established between the markers of French national identity on the one hand and Algerian nationalism on the other. French national identity was consistently evoked and celebrated as rooted in France's universalist tradition that underpinned its colonial mission. By contrast, Algerian nationalism was perceived as the expression of a particularism steeped in what the colonial authorities saw as, and I quote, the fanaticism, ignorance, and obscurantism of the Muslim masses, end of quote. And this is visible in many administrative and police reports I had the opportunity of, of reading. Indeed, French nationalism and colonialism were presented as forces for good and indispensable tools for progress and civilization. Algerian nationalist views and feelings expressed by Algerians were constructed as perverting the very idea of the nation. The nation, in the eyes of the French, was a concept that the, and I quote, impressionable and versatile colonized because of their, quote, rudimentary social state, were deemed unable to fully comprehend. In contrast with French nationalist feelings, which were perceived as the expressions of France's high culture, Algerian nationalism therefore represented, in the eyes of the colonizer, a backward shift that risked undermining France's mission in Algeria. In colonial discourse, Algerian nationalism could also be broached in terms that were very much evocative of a sort of disease carried by increasing numbers of Muslims and whose spread was compared with some sort of a contagion that had to be stopped by all necessary means. A number of intelligence reports refer to the dangers posed by Algerian nationalists to the population in ways that are reminiscent of a body politic exposed to a potentially infectious disease. And the, here are some interesting quotations here. The uncultivated masses 
mass, sorry, constitute a field accessible to all forms of propaganda, good and bad. Too many dangerous ferments have spread among them, and they are likely to develop if such propitious conditions are created, or if the moral resistance of the populations is subjected to too much effort. And this is the kind of discourse that are often encountered in a number of reports that I uh, read last summer. It could be argued here that what was at play was a sort of dialectics of political hygiene that was pitted, that pitted what the French was the healthy colonial body politic against an Algerian nationalism perceived as spreading like a disease, that pitted the universal against the particular, progress against backwardness, order against anarchy, and enlightenment against obscurantism. Aspects of this racialized ideology framed the discourse of the authorities up until the last years of the French colonial presence in Algeria. Another interesting aspect of uh, that discourse, I think, refers to the very notion of universalism. Francis' discursive evocation of its universalist tradition and its mission to civilize and ultimately assimilate the colonized in an ever more distant future had been drawn upon to justify colonial expansion. It continued to be used to validate the discriminatory policies put in place in Algeria on the basis of perceived irreconcilable difference between Europeans and Algerians. Colonization was therefore constructed as an illustration of an inelectable law that of the unstoppable march of progress, and also as a marker of the high aspirations of the human conditions. I'll give you two examples here of that uh, discourse found, not, uh, including in, in the Gouvernement General's uh, reports, which is, I think, is very evocative of, of that kind of tone that we use. Obviously, said the Governor General, it was in keeping with France's spirit or genie that it should follow a policy of assimilation in Algeria to introduce there the institution that it made its own, to grant to the Algerian population political rights that are as broad as those enjoyed by the French in the metropole. However, even though it is its neighbor, Algeria differs profoundly from France, particularly from a human point of view, since two groups of population coexist there whose languages, religions, lifestyles, and civilizations differ. Algerian nationalists, on the other hand, also drew on their own conception of universalist principles to argue in their newspapers and in political meetings that their emancipatory action was moved by these very same uh, principles of human progress, based on human progress. These values, they stated, justify their struggle for independence and their struggle against colonialism. And here is one example amongst many of the uh, argument presented by Algerian nationalists during the interwar period and afterwards. Madam Sir, you should know that humankind has condemned colonialism to the same extent as Nazism in the name of human values. Colonial peoples, in particular, are unanimously driven by their unwavering will to free themselves from the constraints it imposes on them. This is the ineluctable law of universal evolution of peoples that guides them to their liberation. So we can see here very much two uh, discourses that conflict with each other but that are very much informed by the same kind of logic that, of, that is inspired by universalist tradition. The social, ethnic and religious dividing lines of the colonial society remain marked in the interwar period and the political tensions that traditionally characterize the colonial relationship became particularly acute in the context of the rise of Algerian nationalism. So this is a brief kind of introduction to my, my talk. 
I'd like now to say a few words about uh, the development of Algerian uh, political activism, uh, just to set the scene. Uh, it may sound like uh, something that is quite familiar, but uh, I'd just like to kind of give a brief overview of the different political forces that uh, were active uh, in Algeria during that period. On a political level, the colonial relationship translated into a strategy that attempted to establish separations, dividing lines between different political forces in Algeria to try and divide these religious, <coughs> cultural and political groups in order to reinforce France's colonial control and surveillance. This form of surveillance <coughs> applied not only to the official bodies such as the délégation financière, uh, but also to the main Algerian political groups in the 30s. And that includes the North African Star, later to become in 1937 the Parti du Peuple Algérien, PPA, the Fédération des Élus Musulmans, the, French, the Algerian Communist Party, and the Associ Association des Oulémas. And I'll, I'll just say a few words about the creation of the Oulema and the other political organizations before moving on to my uh, discussion of the security services. Uh, the Association des Ulema was established in 1931 by a group of Muslim scholars educated mostly Quranic schools and Muslim universities in Egypt, Tunisia and other parts of the Middle East. It was led from its inception by uh, Ben Badis until his death in Constantine in April 1940 and later by uh, Ibrahimi. Whilst the ulema did not formally intervene in the political sphere, their influence in Algerian politics was significant. As we all know, their motto was, Islam is my religion, Arabic is my language, Algeria is my fatherland. They created a number of Muslim associations called Cercle, and schools as well. Uh, they had 233 Quranic schools by 1939. And this, the number of schools expanded to between 400 and 500 uh, in 1945. So we can see about a very significant expansion of the, their schools uh, during that period. Their aim was to provide education to Algerians in the Arab language, the Arabic language according to Quranic principles, and foster faithful adherence to Muslim ethical and religious codes. Their reformist religious practice, which James MacDougall describes as Jacobin Islam, opposed Muslims' accession to French citizenship, demanded the recognition of Arabic as an official language, and the independence of the Muslim faith and Muslim justice, but did so by claiming that they remained attached to France. The ulema also castigated the more vernacular religious practices of the Marabout, uh, to which the Algerian population at large, particularly in rural areas, remained particularly attached. In the late 1930s, the ulema attempted to reconfigure, unify, codify, and control the contours of the Muslim faith in Algeria by effacing these traditional, fragmented, and highly individual nature of vernacular forms of Islam. The second organization, well-established and well-known one, is the Fédération des Élus Musulmans, which was founded in 1927 and was led initially by Ben Jeloun and assisted by Fahad Abbas, and Fahad was, Abbas was to become the, uh, the leading uh, figure of that movement. And its leadership was mostly composed of French-educated Algerians, with the French often referred to as those who had evolved, the evolué, who called for the adoption of equal rights in Algeria and believed in Muslims' assimilation into the French Republic. The third political force uh, in Algerian politics at the time was the Algerian Communist Party, the PCA, 
which was created out of the Algerian région of the French Communist Party in 1936, and it was led by Ben Ali Boukhoff until 1939, before the Second World War. And it attempted to recruit Algerian militants with its program of reforms, whilst maintaining an amb ambiguous position in relation to the colonial question. The anti-colonial stance adopted by the PCF for a short period of time in the early to mid-1920s had long been forgotten. Uh, one has to remember that the North African Star was established uh, in 1926 with the uh, logistical and material support of the, uh, the Communist Party at the time, uh, later to be uh, forgotten. In February 1939, as we all know, uh, the General Secretary of the French Communist Party, Maurice Torres, described Algeria no longer as um, uh, uh, a colony that was oppressed, but as a nation in formation. And he advocated continued French colonial presence in Algeria. Finally, uh, I'd like to say a few words about the, uh, the Algerian nationalist movement itself. Uh, Benjamin Sora has worked an awful lot on this, so I won't spend too much time on the North African star, but it was, one could argue, the first Algerian nationalist mass organization, which was created in 1926 by Algerian migrant workers in France with the initial support of the Communist Party, as I mentioned before. It was seen by the French authorities as a new development that had been anticipated for some time and viewed as redefining the trajectory of politics in Algeria. Algerian migrant workers were able to take advantage of the relative freedom they enjoyed in France and of the political opportunities open to them through political parties and trade unions to organize around a coherent nationalist agenda and accumulate political capital whilst in France. I would even borrow an expression developed later in the 70s by uh, another organization, a Maoist organization in France called the Mouvement des Travailleurs Arabes, which described the uh, political activism of migrants, North African migrants in France, as enabling them to acquire a revolutionary capital that they were able to bring back to their own country. Of course, the police adopted repressive measures. Uh, the nationalist leader, Mr. Hajj, and other activists were uh, frequently arrested and imprisoned. I'll go into the detail of this. The government banned the Nationalist Party on several occasions, including in 1929 and 1937. However, the colonial system of surveillance and repression proved largely unable to fully control the actions of nationalists in the first decade that followed its creation. And by the mid-1930s, the nationalists focused their efforts on mobilizing Algerians no longer simply uh, within metropolitan France, but in Algeria itself. And in 1936, the leadership of the North African Star uh, strive to re-establish Algerian sections that had been disbanded previously, and this is really the start, 1936 marks the start of the expansion of the North African star's presence uh, in Algeria. There were also links uh, between the North African star, PPA, uh, oh, I should perhaps have mentioned here a few words about those pictures. As you can see here, you've got Miss Ali Hajj, uh, in uh, 1934, during his first arrest by the police, this is a police shot of his face, and you can see here when uh, you've got militants of the North African Star in a cafe in Paris uh, gathering, you've got their newspaper, which was uh, widely read amongst uh, migrants and also exported and in hidden in posts in various envelopes and, and various types of packages. Uh, back to Algeria. I believe that uh, Abbas himself was a reader uh, subscribed to, to El Uma himself. Let's say a few words about the links between the North African star and the Ulama. Whilst a number of leading militants of the PPA 
the Parti du Peuple Algérien, Messali Hadjé's movement created in 1937, had an also secular political outlook. They often championed, championed Muslim culture and religion as fundamental components of Algerian identity. In speeches and their newspapers, and Umma, which I mentioned, the party frequently castigated the control of Muslim faith and the repressive measures imposed by the French on Muslim scholars. However, it is worth noting that the repeated attempts made by Mazali Hajj to establish a united front between his party, the Ulema and the Elu, largely failed. Mesali developed links also with the Tunisian nationalists through his contacts with El Madani, who played a central role in the establishment of the Tunisian Destour and the Association des Ulema as well. He also established a relationship with the leading Moroccan nationalist Al-Fassi of the Parti de l'Action Marocaine. So his attempt really was to not only build bridges between the uh, PPA and various political forces in Algeria, but also to develop uh, tighter links, closer links with the uh, nationalists in Tunisia and Morocco at the time. He also took advantage of internal divisions within the reformist organizations to increase the influence of the nationalist party. During the second half of the 1930s, the Congrès Musulman, which gathered uh, the main uh, political forces and the ulema I mentioned before, the Congrès Musulman was weakened by its failure to obtain meaningful concessions from the French authorities. Uh, one has to remember that in 1936, when the Front Populaire government uh, 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 was established in France, uh, the uh, so-called uh, Projet Bloom Violet, which aimed to introduce some very timid uh, reforms in Algeria, was largely abandoned. And I think discredited to a large extent those reformist political organizations, and Messali Hajj took advantage of that. He also took advantage of the divisions within the ulema, uh, particularly the tensions that existed between Ben Badis and uh, El Okbe. And to reinforce the religious appeal of the party, Messali Hajj also appointed um, uh, a leading figure uh, in Algeria, uh, Said Zahiri. He became his aide in charge of organizing the Etoile in Algeria. And Zahiri was a pro prominent and ambiguous, ambitious sorry, figure in Oran, a next member of the ulema who had studied at the prestigious Islamic universities of Zahuna in Tunisia and Al-Fazar in Egypt. In an attempt to gain the support of the Mossadegh community, Messali Hajj also confirmed uh, Mufti Zakaria in his role as General Secretary of the uh, Central Section of the Etoile in Algiers. And he also appointed uh, Gafara as a key advisor, two leading figures of the Mossadegh community. On the eve of the Second World War, uh, the Parti du Peuple Algérien, the Algerian People's Party, was the only party explicitly and consistently calling for Algerian independence. And the French security services worked to enforce divisions within and between those Algerian political organizations as well as in, within the ulema. So what was the policy of the French authorities towards the, the ulema? Well, it was to actually take advantage of this uh, tensions that existed between Ben Badis and El Obbi himself. And their action tended to focus mostly uh, on nationalist activism. I'd like to say a few words on this. Weeks before uh, uh, France's declaration of war against Germany, the authorities were determined to act against the PPA. They tried to ban it on several occasions. The Enorm Pacte was banned in 1929, in the early 1930s, in 1937. Yet, Messali Hajj was still able to continue, uh, despite all the difficulties, to mobilize Algerians around its uh, nationalist agenda. In the same period, 
the authorities acted also against the communists. The communist press was banned in August, and the Parti du Communiste Algérien, the Algerian Communist Party, was dissolved in 1939. Once the strategy adopted by the administration failed to halt the development of nationalist activism in Algeria, these measures severely weakened the nationalist organization. I won't have time today to explore what happened from 1940-41 onwards, but uh, I'd like to say a few words towards my in my conclusion about what happened um, after the war period. So let's say a few words about uh, colonial control and the security services, which is the main topic of my presentation here. The functioning of Algerian colonial society normally involved the establishment of a complex security apparatus. French intelligence services focused their attention on subversive political activity and also on the international scene that was perceived to be a potential threat to colonial presence in Algeria. But as uh, Martin Thomas argues, rightly in my view, imperial control in Algeria, as well as in other French colonial territories, was far from complete. It relied heavily on the security services, the military intelligence service of the second bureau of the army, deuxième bureau du corps d'armée, and also the police special branch of the Sûreté Générale. This imperial control also uh, relied on uh, officers and uh, on the extensive informers' networks to ensure that subversive activities, as they describe them, were checked. But it also could also be argued that the lack of coordination between these security services and the French judiciary had for a long time hampered efforts to prosecute nationalists. And this growing awareness in the administration of the limitation of intelligence gathering, gathering led to a number of reforms of the colonial services, both in France and in Algeria. So in France, in metropolitan France, several services were established to control the growing and predominantly Algerian North African migrant community during the interwar period. In 1925, a service was created, it was called the Service d'assistance aux indigènes nord-africains, SAINA. It was based uh, in the 17th arrondissement in Rue Le Comte, Le Comte Street, and it was created and placed under the control of the uh, police prefecture of Paris. At the heart of this service was the Brigade Nord-Africaine, BNA. This police unit became known as the Service de la Rue Le Comte, service based in Rue Le Comte or Service Nord-Africain, which the nationalists often condemned in their newspaper. Its aim was both to provide assistance to North African colonial workers in France, but also to control and repress their political activities and gather intelligence. It relied extensively on personnel who had experience or knowledge of North Africa, mainly European settlers in Algeria or Algerians themselves. Their experience was based on their background, on their experience as veterans of the French colonial army or working in the overseas territories as civil servants. The success of the uh, Service de la Rue de Comte in Paris was such that uh, it was decided to expand this control system to other main urban centers in France in 1928. A number of services des affaires indigènes nord-africaines were established in cities that had attracted large numbers of North African migrants, uh, including Saint-Étienne, uh, Lyon, and Marseille. And their remit was explained in a police report. Wherever necessary, it is vital to closely monitor and put right the political views of the indigène in metropolitan France to foil any attempts 
from various quarters to spread harmful propaganda which could adversely affect their opinions, to put in place measures regarding any bad influences and to observe the effects of their stay in France on the way their views and attitude progress. So this was a fairly ambitious policy of the French authorities. However, it should be acknowledged that those regional units largely failed to function as effectively as the service de la rue Le Comte. And by the end of the 1930s, these various services in provincial France were faced with a number of organizational difficulties. The Saïna of Marseille, for example, whose action focused on much of the south of France, was affected by lack of means, material means, but also lack of clarity of the terms of its mission. It suffered from uh, insufficient funding and relative isolation from the other administrative services. The name of the service itself was misleading. As a unit attached to the Ministère de l'Intérieur, the Interior Ministry, it was only able to deal with Algerians. Unlike Moroccans and Tunisians, who were uh, classified as protégés, subjects from protectorates, Algerians were officially classified as French, even though the vast majority were obviously subjects, not citizens of France. And at the start of the Second World War, uh, the work of these uh, brigades was even more affected by uh, new developments. The coordination and the surveillance of Algerians in France was becoming even more difficult because of the German occupation and the limitations of the uh, service nord-africain in the free zone, which not, could not have uh, rely so much on uh, closer cooperation with the French authorities. So concerned with this development and the, in occupied France, the Governor General of Algeria decided to create another type of service in Marseille. The service was called Service des Affaires Indigènes. It was a unit based at the Prefecture des Bouches du Rhône in Marseille, and it was headed by the military intelligence officer Major Van Baer, and its aim was to organize the surveillance of political activity amongst Algerians in France and report not as it did before to the central government but directly to Algiers. So it was, I think, a major change in the way intelligence gathering uh, was developing during the occupation. The system of surveillance relied on informers who were recruited by security services at all levels of Algerian political, religious, and cultural organizations. And I think it does make good, very interesting reading because key names of uh, the North, North African staff, for example, were uh, shown to have actually worked very closely with the French authorities. Some belong, that belong to the high echelons of the North African star and the nationalist organizations. And the level of reliability of the information that they provided was consistently evaluated by security services. I mentioned, for example, one key figure appointed by Mesali Hajj in Algeria, um, who used to be a member of the uh, Ulema, Zahiri, um, according to uh, Mohamed uh, Harbi, uh, Zahiri was um, accused of being uh, of working for Captain Schoen and the security services at the start of the Algerian war and he was executed by the FNN, for example. A few words about intelligence gathering in colonial Algeria. Whilst informers played an important role in the intelligence gathering process in Algeria, uh, a process of reorganization of services also took place on the other side of the Mediterranean. The need for reliable intelligence started to be felt by the administration, particularly in the mid-1930s. I think this is a key period. 
And the key event that marked the change of policy in intelligence gathering uh, can be traced to, more precisely, to the summer of 1934, and more specifically, to the riot that took place in Constantine in August of that year. Uh, the riot itself in Constantine was triggered by uh, uh, accusation by Muslim that uh, a, a drunken French Jewish soldier, Eliyahu Khalifa, uh, who was drunk at the time, had insulted Muslims and had desecrated the mosque. He had apparently urinated in a mosque against the wall of the mosque. And the violence that ensued between the 3rd and the 6th of August 1934 was compounded by uh, the uh, army's failure to intervene. This, these riots led to the death of 26 people, 23 Jews and 3 Muslims, and 21 people were injured. Following these riots that opposed Muslim and Jewish communities in Constantine, uh, the governor general at the time, Georges Lebeau, became concerned about the failure of his information service, which was called the Direction des Affaires Indigènes, to foresee such disturbances. And he decided to uh, disband the, uh, this Direction des Affaires Indigènes and reform the uh, intelligence service that worked closely with him. The authorities considered that this Direction des Affaires Indigènes had been too absorbed by their administrative tasks and had not followed, and I quote, the state of mind of the Muslim masses as closely as they should have done. To deal with this situation, it was decided that intelligence officers would be recruited and freed from any administrative duty to devote themselves entirely to the surveillance of the Algerian population. Governor, jo Governor General Georges Lebeau asked uh, Louis Millot uh, to run the newly created Direction Générale des Affaires Indigènes et des Territoires du Sud. Louis Millot was uh, an interesting um, um, actor uh, in that period. He was dean of the law faculty at the University of Algiers. He was also director general des affaires indigènes at the government general in 1935. But he had also served under resident general Louis Hubert Lyotet in Morocco during the First World War. And Louis Millot advised uh, Georges Lebeau to reorganize his services. And on his advice, and on the advice also of Charles Nogues, who was commanding the 19th Corps of the French Army in Algeria, Governor General Lebeau recruited a number of experienced military officers who had served in the Affaires Indigènes in Morocco to overhaul the intelligence service in Algeria and established an organization inspired by the very effective system put in place by Lyotet in Morocco. This intelligence service was called the Centre d'Information et d'Études, CIE. It was established in May 1935, only a few months after these events in Constantine, and became fully operational on the following year, 1936. In a letter to the three Algerian préfets, Governor General Lebeau stated that the role of the CIE, newly created CIE, was to acquire at all levels a deep understanding of the political and social development of Algeria's peoples collate and produce a general document on political trends and all facts which might have an influence within Algeria. Summarize this document for me was adding a general up-to-date results of your research into political events which could affect the French political scene with regard to relationship with the Muslim population. General studies, notes and reports on social and political developments and on the state of mind of the Asian population were regularly produced. Archives were established. These included lists of all correspondence, their activities, notes on Algerians engaged in political activity and uh, their political leanings, their actions and their personal and family situations. 
The regular report that they presented to the Governor General aimed to go beyond the narrow and partial reporting from the administration and from other uh, security services. It aimed to define more accurately and realistically, realistically the state of mind of the population, identify tensions and conflicts within the Muslim population, but also any foreign propaganda targeting them. This, in, this intelligence produced by these, the CIA aimed to provide a more accurate perspective on the political situation and on occasion made recommendations on important reforms. And it was quite interesting to see the internal debates that actually marked the, these documents. Uh, some of them were very much rooted within the, uh, the kind of logic I've described at the beginning of this paper, that of uh, a French civilizing mission, for example, um, guiding the uh, uncivilized Algerians uh, towards uh, emancipation. Other, parts, other reports produced slightly more enlightened um, views of the situation. One example, amongst many here, until recently, said a report from the CIA, the intelligentsia, who are still in the main in favor of assimilation, are now gradually moving towards separatist ideas. How should we respond to this shift? Mainly the status, maintain the status quo? We don't believe that it can be maintained indefinitely. It is becoming ever more obvious that the native, especially the more civilized native, évolué, suffers from an inferiority complex. In the end, to overcome this complex, they will either be with us or against us, either in the hopes of achieving full equality or through the emergence of a purely Arab and Muslim patriotism. If this development can to some extent be guided, it is up to us to do this by granting the elite those political rights which they can legitimately expect. So we can see that internal debates, including considerations about the rights of Algerians, were going on within the uh, CIE at the time. And on the day when France uh, declared war on Germany as well, in 1939, Le Beau informed, uh, General Governor, Governor General Le Beau informed the Préfet that uh, the CIE should step up their operations. The reason was clear. Uh, there was the threat of German propaganda, the reduction also in the means available to the CIE to carry out its intelligence work uh, during the war as well. They were also in, um, asked to infiltrate all layers of the Muslim population to gather and recruit intelligence, carry out investigations, and assess the impact of the action of political parties on the uh, Muslim masses, as they described them. But, as I said before, there were clear limitations in the process of intelligence gathering. And these were marked, for example, by these tensions that could exist within the, uh, the CIE and between the CIE and the administration. Well, when George Bush was replaced by uh, a new governor general uh, at the time, when he, in a meeting it was reported by uh, Captain Schoen uh, as having had a meeting with um, Admiral Jean-Marie Abrial, the new incoming uh, Governor General, and Major, uh, Commandant Vander, Major Vander, in his meeting was reported as having said to the new Governor General, and this is only a short quotation from a long meeting, the indigenous population consider that as such, and, as, and since they represent the majority, they should be everything, but they are, they are nothing. They are expecting to defend something. He was clearly here making um, uh, a case for uh, uh, urgent reforms of the colonial order to the newly appointed uh, Governor General. 
But obviously, Abrial was a, a very different type of governor general compared with Legault. And following this meeting, uh, Commandant Vendel was removed from his position by the Gouverneur General, and he was, one would say, promoted, one would say, demoted. He was sent to Marseille, in metropolitan France, to head the Service des Affaires Indigènes in Marseille, which I mentioned earlier in my uh, paper. So what happened during the Second World War? Well, the role played by the CIA declined. Uh, its work in intelligence gathering was affected by lack of means, lack of political support, lack of will from Abrial, uh, amongst others, to support it. And in 1940, Governor General Abrial uh, even more, it reduced the influence of the CIA by transferring it from its civilian cabinet, very close to, to where he worked, to a more distant Muslims Affairs Department and it's undermined its effectiveness. But at the end of the war, uh, major changes were, not, were made to the French security services in Algeria, and the intelligence services was again to play an important role. In 1945, the CIA became, changed names, and it became the Service d'Information et de Documentation Musulmane, SIDM, a unit whose main remit the surveillance of Algerians was reflected in its new name. The, uh, the very word musulman here indicates this. Two years later, in May 1947, the major administrative reforms introduced in Algeria by the French, and particularly the creation of the Délégation Générale du Plan that aimed to introduce a system of planning in the colony, led to the decision that this new organization that arose out of the ashes of the CIE, this SIDM, should play a more prominent role at the heart of the government general. So we can see a kind of return of influence of this organization within the Gouvernement Général, after having been largely marginalized during the Second World War. The SIDM was now directly attached to the cabinet, again, of the Gouverneur General Alain Chatelion, and it became, to change name again, and it became the Service des Liaisons Nord-Africaines, SLNA. And the SLNA was headed by an ex-officer of the CIE, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Schoen, a very um, dominant figure within the security services at the time, and it was organized around a longer structure that largely reflected that of the CIE back in the mid-1930s, but it was given a broader remit. The SLMA, the kind of continuation of the CIE, was amongst other things in charge of the campaign of propaganda <coughs> for the administration. It targeted Argen the Algerian Muslim population in cinemas and by ways of tracts and posters, and ran the Arabic language service of Radio Algérie as well. So it was um, uh, an organization that not only carried out surveillance and control, but also uh, was in charge of the propaganda for the Gouvernement Général. And this decision was informed by the Gouvernement Général uh, in order to have also detailed, up-to-date intelligence on the state of mind and the demands of Algerians during the elaboration and the implementation of the plan. So I'll stop here and I'll just conclude by uh, saying that uh, the French colonial authorities' attempt to counter the development of Algerian nationalism led to important and durable changes in the French intelligence gathering process in Algeria, but also in France. However, despite the increased effectiveness of the methods used by the security services to infiltrate and gather intelligence, uh, the CIE and the later, later the SDIM were marked by important internal tensions and largely failed to stem the rise of nationalists in the post-war period. 
By the early 1950s, the newly created SLNA, which I've just mentioned, aimed to become, and I quote, the real political bureau of the Gouvernement Général. Their aim was to ensure that there was continuity in the political action of the administration that tended to be affected by frequent changes of personnel at the top of the Gouvernement Général. And this newly intelligence, this new intelligence service aimed to go back to those basic priorities set by Gouverneur General Lebeau back in the 1930s. And it could be argued that this newly reformed intelligence service was to inform the uh, colonial intelligence gathering process uh, up until the middle of the Algerian War in 1957. And I'll stop here. Thank you. Well, can I can I seize uh, chairman's privilege and ask ask you a first question? Um, I always find it, it's intriguing in discussions of this kind that one is tempted, um, rightly in a way, to speak about the French colonial power as a sort of black box. Mm. Um, um, the French do this, the French do that, and um, in in a sense, when one's talking about the higher echelons of the administration, of which the security services and usually part, that that's certainly true. These people are high-flying Frenchmen. Curious thing I would feel is that there's that quite a large chunk of the mass of the French population is by ancestry not French at all. Um, um, they're, they're Italian, Spanish, Maltese, goodness knows what, large numbers of Jews, people from right around the Mediterranean. So um, 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 it's intriguing to think, is it not, the French have in a sense performed um, two uh, missions civilatrices in Algeria, one of them successful mm -hmm. in the sense that they made Frenchmen out of this rather disparate population, yes. um, which had certain cultural um, um, basic things in common. Um, 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 their religion, of course, to a certain extent, and also cultural assumptions, but, but failed with the other one. Um, um, would it be right to think that the French did a kind of double uh, mission civilatrice. Yeah, I mean, be before you start, I'm, I'm just going to admit to a case of Insidia d'Alzheimer's. I wish I could remember the name of the brilliant film I saw in France about two or three years ago, which basically the thrust was a young um, Frenchman, a, col a colon, mm -hmm. who's a lawyer, right. um, who is courting the daughter of this rich family and also attempting to defend a number of indigenous Algerians who've been falsely accused of doing something worthy well, the appalling. And, um, and the, trans the trial is transferred to Montpellier and he follows it to Montpellier and so on and he gradually falls out with the family. But the family is Spanish mm. and they speak Spanish at home, you see. How interesting. <laughs> well, yes, that's... Uh... I think that's a very, very uh, interesting uh, you know, comment. Uh, but I, I would, to some extent, challenge the, the very notion that the French were able to turn uh, the Pianois into good Frenchmen, whilst failing to do so with Algerians. I mean, based on, on the work I've done on, uh, on the Algerian national movement, more specifically on, on migrant workers and on the North African star, the PPA, what struck me, I think, is the reminiscent uh, impression I had of a discourse that was very French in, its very, uh, in the way it was constructed. I mean, national, Algerian nationalist discourse was very much rooted within a French universalist tradition, one that aimed to construct an Algeria that was based on one language, 
um, on national unity, on one religion, uh, on um, precepts which very much reflected uh, some of the university's values that the French had uh, very often, you know, uh, discussively presented in Algeria without implementing them. So I think the uh, the very notion of what is being French is, is very much challenged within within uh, the colonial context. And I, I think the French and uh, intended consequence of the French presence in Algeria was very much a kind of adoption by opposition of many of those, those French values and those uh, markers of national identity by nationalists. At what point would you think you could, they, they could have um, successfully claimed that the Algerian, the, the colonial population of Algeria had in effect become French? At what stage in history did that take Ooh, place? That's it. Um, I wouldn't be able to put a date on, on those events, but what I would say is that um, the very endeavor to become independent was couched mm. in French inspired discourse of national liberation and emancipation. Mm. Uh, the kind of evocation of Victor Hugo, of French revolutionary values of 1789, which were repeatedly included in, in articles and speeches by uh, various political activists in Algeria and in France, uh, very much seemed to suggest that uh, you know, those values were you know, adopted by nationalists, although built and used in a different way. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were very much influenced by those French uh, yeah. values. And of course they did become very French. They, they contributed to uh, France's perhaps major philosophers and bankers. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yes. yes. Um, um, questions through the chair, please. Um, thank you. It was very interesting. Um, sorry, I just want to pick up a little bit on what John's been saying. I challenge how far the Mission Civilisatrice succeeded with Quémoire. Mm. Um, sure, there are lots of contributions we could point to um, in French life and so on. But I think the sheer, you know, what happened at the end of the War of Independence and the, you know, the reluctance to leave, the way they were received in France, I think, put into the um, a whole series of doubts we could um, look at there. However, sorry, the question mm -hmm. I, I have for you is, um, I'm quite intrigued by what you're saying. One of the things coming to me um, that I wonder about is how far were the various, let's just put a blanket term on the nationalist organizations, aware of what is going on? And did they make any sort of attempt at counterintelligence? Were they? Um, well, I, I, from what I've seen from uh, um, internal documents from the uh, national organization that I mentioned here, I think there was an awareness that uh, there were not only uh, people who were spying for the French authorities in the audience when they organized political meetings, for example, but also within the organization. I think that was a, that was a, a real concern by, uh, expressed by a number of leading militants, uh, not even aware sometimes that those um, uh, expressing uh, concern were themselves sometimes working with the French. So I think there was an awareness of that. How did they counter it? Very difficult, actually, to, for them to counter it. But what they were able to do is to develop, I think, um, forms of, of, of uh, organizations and mobilization that challenged these, uh, the strategy put in place by the police and the security services. For example, when the authorities banned a meeting uh, in France, the North African South was able to mobilize uh, Algerian and other North African taxi drivers to suddenly transfer all the audience to a different location. 
uh, within you know, a very short period of time. So they're very responsive to uh, various forms of repression as well, um, in, in very creative ways. Uh, and when they were not able to meet, when those meetings were banned, uh, they uh, relied very much on this vast network of cafes and restaurants um, in Paris, but also in Algiers, in order to organize smaller meetings, in order to carry on with their activism. You should incidentally say who you are. Those are the rules. And he didn't say who he is, but he's the treasurer of the Society for Algeria. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, well, my name is Nadia Logab. I'm from King's College. Uh, and I'm also a co founder of the Algerian uh, Network for Classic Bob in Algeria. I'm really interested in your research. I should compliment it. was very comprehensive and very well detailed. However, um, um, I have. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in, was there anything uh, from your decades of research and, you know, mm -hmm. investigation that you think we as Algerians of today should take as a lesson in order to move forward? We, we all know that Algeria, unfortunately, it's not in a good shape today. So was there anything um, that struck, struck you and would say, well, this is what Algerians back in the day had and they don't have today. Mm. And also, uh, if I understood your conclusion accurately, um, you said that the, the, the problem with the French intelligentsia was the fact that there were um, sort of um, internal dis disability and also conflict of interest, and etc. Mm -hmm. shift of personalities. But um, do you think that was another reason from the Algerian political activism that you know was kind of defeating the French intelligentsia. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm just mm -hmm. um, moving or tending to just a kind of extrapolate of your research on what we have today uh, yes. as political activism, what we should take from the history, because the history is very inter mm -hmm. interesting. It's real okay. to know the history, but it's better to learn from history what we should do today. Mm -hmm. yes. just read books and um, yes, I'm actually, again, uh, that's something which. Uh, um, went through my mind when I, uh, when I worked on archives. I may be contradicted by uh, new evidence, uh, you know, unearthed by other researchers. But uh, I think what struck me is the the kind of recurrence of debates that uh, took place uh, during the colonial period within the Nazist movement, which seemed to to have carried on after independence. I mean, the very notion of what the Algerian nation was about, uh, what it was in terms of its cultural, linguistic. Uh, historical identity was also very much uh, uh, debated within the nationalist organizations and we know what Mesali Haji's view of what the nation was to be and which very much influenced the FLN later and post-independence uh, Algeria but I think there were many activists uh, particularly within colonial uh, metropolitan France who called for a different type of Algeria a different form of Algeria one that was pluralist what was not simply drawing on democratic values uh, uh, in discursive forms, but was uh, about implementing those, uh, those values, uh, calling, for example, uh, for the reconciliation of all Algerians, whether they're Quinoa um, and, or uh, 
Berbers or Arab, Arab speakers and such. Um, these discourses were very important, but gradually they were marginalized, I think, within the organization. But uh, it seems that this debate has never been resolved. Really. What is Algeria? You know, what, what is it as a nation? What defines uh, Algerian national identity? Something which I, I, I'm not a specialist of post-war Algeria as such, but uh, my, my kind of view of what's been happening since uh, the war is that it's not really been resolved. You know, how do we define Algerian identity beyond language uh, and culture? I think the notion of history as well, which, which is one that has uh, also been very recurrent in the internal debates and disputes, was uh, the uh, erasure of Algeria's history prior to the Arab invasion uh, as well. You know, it did not exist. Anything that happened before was very much uh, either marginalized or described uh, in order to reinforce the nationalist discourse. Roman uh, uh, presence in North Africa was, for example, presented as an example that should be followed. They said to the French, for example, in one, one interesting uh, article, look at what happened to the, the Romans. The only ruins left behind. This will happen to you as well. Uh, this is the kind of discourse that they had. I felt that your paper would be stronger if there was more of a context of the time. Mm -hmm. Because we had the third uh, republic in France mm -hmm. uh, and the right-wing party were vicious during that period. And I wonder then, uh, once they lost control, that the men who were sent to do this kind of uh, questioning or assessing uh, certainly had prejudice with regard to the indigenous population. And I think then that the aspirations would have been tainted uh, when you were talking about a particular kind of freedom for the uh, population in Algeria, the Algerians, that it was already pre-decided based on, if not uh, a prejudice, certainly a bias. And I think once the framework then in context with what they're doing in Algeria or in France with regard to this kind of accumulation of uh, evidence, do they go to the extent that to extract that evidence, what kind of uh, thing do they do uh, in terms of getting this information? Yes. I think otherwise, to me, as a listener, to run into uh, so many different uh, acronyms mm -hmm. uh, where it doesn't help me. I couldn't care less, frankly, mm -hmm. in a talk if I was receiving first at CIA and then at Service Day and Liaison and all that. It, it, it has no influence upon what I'm interested in. Uh, and that could be my bias is 
what are the aspirations of the French in North Africa in terms of having a secret service or an intelligence gathering service. So I say this not as a criticism of your consideration yes. to expand, because I feel the subject is uh, mind. So I think it's a very fair, fair comment. Uh, work in progress, but I, uh, my hope is that uh, by uh, completing my survey of the uh, archives that I'm working on at the moment, I'll be able to actually uh, go beyond the, you know, that kind of fairly historical account of what happened when, etc., and the internal tensions within the this organisation. What I was, I think, interested in is the uh, the kind of continuity of the security services and the, the various forms of uh, the various kind of uh, tension that existed within it. But you're right. I think it needs to be more sensitive to the political developments uh, in France at, the mo at that time, the Third Republic and the Pétain government, etc. One should, however, uh, take note of the fact that um, many of the Officers that uh, worked within the security services at the time, prior to the start of the Second World War, during and after, were the same. Uh, I mentioned Schoen, I mentioned Vender, but many others were working with both with pro reform or more moderate uh, Gouverneur General prior to the Second World War, and uh, perhaps more right wing, um, uh, hard, well, um, colonists such as Abrial at the start of the war, for example, and those people moved from one position to the next, but they seem somehow to revolve around the various gouverneurs général using their knowledge, expertise to to work closely with those those um, those uh, administrators, regardless of their political orientation, and they continue to do so uh, in the in the 40s, in the 50s. And up until the, the very end of the Algerian War, I, can, uh, I saw all the same names coming back and back again. But you're right, I think I need to go beyond what I've done so far and, and perhaps make it more context sensitive and perhaps talk more about the political shifts that took place at the time and how they they the purpose them. is exposed. Yes. The, the official purpose, how does it match the unofficial? Mm. Yes. The people who are in charge within this area. What's their background in terms of their attitudes or yes. biases towards our Yes. I think I'm currently I've identified, for example, and published uh, a manuscript from uh, Paul Schoen. Paul Schoen is someone I mentioned before. Um, his, 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 his biography as such has been unpublished. Uh, shedding so some new lights on, on the, the connections that seem to exist between not only metropolitan France and, and Algeria at the time, but also between uh, the, the different gouverneurs général that seem to, uh, to impose their own views on the administration at the time and how these services were able to uh, uh, continue their work in despite those changes of personnel as such. That's my, my next stage, but I, I take this point very. Uh, very well. It's, it's a very important one. I agree. In defense of, of, of your approach, can I say my feeling is that in dealing with French history and, um, and certainly um, perhaps of uh, 
uh, French official, uh, official bodies um, faced by nationalist organizations is inevitably going to be a battle of the acronyms. The French, French organizations, fl acronyms flourish. Mm -hmm. and, and in a mirror image of the French desire to, to name everything acronymically, I'm afraid nationalist organizations end up doing exactly the same thing. So it's a frightful battle of the, of the, of, of the, uh, once, the once the era has passed and one's looking at it from a historical distance of the non-memorable acronyms, which, which sometimes makes us sort of this very difficult to digest. Now, <laughs> yes, I think it's uh, um, one of the two, the next stage which I think you've seen some sort of, some sort of thread in, in my paper here is to, to, to look more closely at how the Second World War um, in a way uh, had an impact on who was gathering intelligence and the shift from metropolitan France to Algeria during the occupation is quite an interesting one. How um, previously those uh, police and surveillance services based in metropolitan France were certainly in contact with Algeria, but they were under the, the, the control of the French authorities in metropolitan France. And the occupation led to a shift, and the Gouverneur General in Algiers took charge of these services in, in, in the free zone. And I'd like to explore more how that was done, how it was justified, and how it developed during the, the Second World War as well. Um, my, my name is Nicolas, and I think one of the most evident colonial scars of this um, intelligence services that you have um, shown to us tonight is the fact that the, what was done with the native informants after the War of Independence and during the, the 1920s and 1940s and uh, the Department of Sociology has been recently um, looking at the um, situation of the Harkis mm -hmm. in um, 2013 mm -hmm. in France yes. And there has been, I don't know if you are familiar with a book which was published recently, which is called The Heart is the One That Never Heals. Mm -hmm. The attention that that book has been given in critical geographers and sociologists has been relatively high. Mm -hmm. But what do you think about the official French position towards the Heart in France? Mm -hmm. Currently. 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 Well, it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a very complex issue, firstly, one that I uh, have not researched beyond the remit of my, um, my investigations of archival documents. But generally speaking, I think there's a gradual recognition of uh, the legacy of French colonial presence in Algeria, uh, the recognition, the gradual recognition of the, the role of the Harkis uh, within uh, the French army and the service that were rendered, the different treatment that uh, where uh, were different ways in which Harkis and Pierrois were treated. I think all the, the, the Pierrois were able to, despite the difficulties, the cultural differences, were able to uh, have access to all the facilities, to accommodation very quickly. The Harkis were to a large extent placed in camps in France, largely forgotten uh, to, for a long period of time. And this gradual recognition, I think, is one that is motivated by, obviously, political opportunism, but also by a gradual recognition of the, uh, the role that they played. Uh, it's difficult for 
to, to assess the, the role within a broader historical perspective in, in the context of this paper. What I would say is that the, the hierarchies themselves found them, are found that their role was very complex because you could have within the same family the brother was FLN and the hierarchy. Uh, another brother who was a, a hockey member, for example. So trying to make clear divisions on the basis of belonging to the hockey, uh, the Harkas, or to the, the FNN is very, very difficult. I was uh, able to interview, for example, uh, an, um, an ex-FLN leader in France um, four years ago who said that he was able to avoid uh, persecution and arrest by the French army in Algeria by being held by one of his cousins who was a Harki uh, in Algeria and enabled him to take a ship from, uh, to Marseille, for example. So this kind of sense of belonging to one particular camp or another, I think is slightly um, problematic to a large extent. But yes, I think that there's, a, there's a major shift in what, what has been happening in the last few years, particularly since the Sarkozy uh, government, for example. On the other hand, can I, can I put in something anecdotal at that point? I was shocked about, um, oh, 15 years ago or so, to, to, to read in the local newspaper in, near, in, at the, 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 the town in France where I spent some of my time, mm -hmm. um, about social disturbances involving young men um, identifiable as, as Haki, mm -hmm. even though they're, they're young men born in, born in France, who had indeed been um, born to families who had been decanted into one of these camps um, um, at, at the time of independence, which had transformed itself into, if you like, a housing estate, a, a sort of HLN, you know, it transformed itself into social housing, but all the people who lived there were still Haki, regarded themselves as such and were identifiable as such. And the young men were, were understandably annoyed that they were being discriminated against uh, in misuse of employment and this sort of thing. And we're, we're talking here about sort of um, 1990, you know, no, no uh, later than that, 1995. Yes. Absolutely appalling. Yes. Uh, the extent well, to which it carries on. So you say it's difficult to tell the difference, but you know, they know the difference, of course. I think, you know, uh, my view is that the 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 and their children, particularly, were, were subjected to two forms of, of marginalisation in France. The first one had to do with their, their status as parkies or children of parkies, but also, I would argue, uh, as uh, marginalised by other Algerian and uh, North African migrants and their children in France. This kind of double um, rejection, as such, was, I think, uh, uh, strongly uh, felt by the uh, this community. You said basically the French intelligence service took advantage of the tensions between the Ulama and the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. So could you please elaborate more on how they dealt with the Ulamas in particular mm -hmm. in order to weaken their influence? That's my first question. Um, my second question, regarding the informers at that time, so could you please, um, I wonder whether you could tell us more about uh, their motives, whether they were ideological or more financial mm -hmm. motives, or maybe they were threatened. So what sort of mm -hmm. methods the French service used mm -hmm. in order to recruit them? Yes. Please. 
I think the different strategies and methods that were used very much include many of the things you've just said. The um, first one was to identify um, members of a particular group, the ulama for example, and to um, identify them possibly as more sensitive to uh, French propaganda, for example, and some were approached uh, in that respect and were provided with material uh, means to actually further their influence within the organization. Um, and, uh, and, and others are, are examples of that. The other method used was threat, threat of, uh, which could range from closing uh, Quranic schools to um, uh, making it more difficult for them to, uh, to meet uh, with uh, other supporters, uh, to rewarding them with various um, uh, official forms of recognition uh, of the French Republic, etc. So there were enticements, there were threats, there were different forms of, of, of coercion uh, that were used at the time. The other thing also is that they uh, kept, I think, a very close eye on what the ulama were, were doing. I mean, they, as we know, we ne they never banned the, the ulama as an organization, to my knowledge. But uh, they kept a close eye, for example, on Ben Badis. When he moved to, uh, to Paris, he went to Paris in 1936 to, make, to meet uh, Leon Blum and, and others uh, to try and uh, kind of reinforce the message that reforms were needed in Algeria. Uh, but they closely monitored his actions in Paris, and they monitored the fact that he'd met uh, Messali Hajj, that he'd said to Messali Hajj, that uh, it was perhaps easier for Ms. Ali Hajj to kind of um, argue for Algerian independence in Paris rather than kind of um, present this kind of nationalist message in Algeria. And this was an area of concern, and I think they I found a couple of reports that uh, expressed strong concerns when Ms. Ali Hajj replied that he would um, take this as a, as a challenge and move to Algeria to address the Algerian population. As, as we know, in August 1936, I believe he traveled on the same boat as the delegation of Ulema and Elu. Uh, would come to, to meet Leon Blum on the same boat and uh, arrived in Algiers to address the, uh, the Algerians. I think 20,000 Algerians who were in the stadium uh, in August uh, for that meeting and, who, and he made this momentous speech which uh, enabled many Algerians to discover this political message. So this was, I think, very much control. Within the nationalist organization, it was the same method. I think, you know, financial means were used to coerce people to uh, follow the French uh, services line. Uh, threats were used arrests, etc. Some became uh, informants for the French during their prison, uh, their imprisonment. Uh, that happened particularly during the occupation uh, of France, the Second World War. A number of people were subjected to interrogations and others were, uh, I think, two cases in particular um, show that the French authorities were able to um, to make sure that those people collaborated with the French authorities uh, once they were released from prison. So yes, it's a very it's it's working progress. I'd like to to, 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 to work more on, on, on those methods, but they're all there in different ways. Well, if uh, if if we're through with questions, um, um, sure. yes, excellent. Hello, my name is uh, Maxim Maguire, and I am uh, half Algerian. I would like to ask you a question about the, you mentioned that the, national, the Algerian nationalists, they have put forward mainly the Arabic language and the Islam to say that those were the main components what they were fighting for in the independence Algeria. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering what, that, what kind of impact did that have on the other Algerians? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking first about the French people, the Chinois, mm -hmm. who were there for a very long time, 
I guess they could have been like really very valuable. Um, they could have been very valuable in the revolution since they had the most money and the most knowledge mm -hmm. and the most and all this. So did they feel completely rejected by this idea of Arabic and Muslim country? Mm -hmm. And uh, on the other side, it was the Berbers. Mm -hmm. I believe they make like a massive chunk of Algerian population. Yes. They probably made the idea to Islam as a religion, but they don't speak Arabic at all. Mm -hmm. So how did they feel as well about this about joining a revolution that would set a country, an Arabic country, on their own land? Let's, uh, yes. Uh, as far as the PMR are concerned, uh, as I mentioned before, I think there was a, a, an, an internal tension within, within Algerian nationalism during that period. Uh, and I, I need to go to the post-war period to, to assess whether that was the case afterwards. But there was clearly two forms of discourse. One of them was uh, very much open, open and inclusive, uh, which, as I mentioned before, aimed to bring together all Algerians based on this notion of reconciliation, on the use of uh, French technology, French expertise in order to help Algeria uh, develop as a nation. I think there were examples that were given by uh, Messali Hajan and, and many of his supporters that showed that France should continue to work closely with Algeria and reconcile all the communities uh, around the, those principles which were based on democracy. On the other hand, I think you had a much more um, closed type of discourse, one that focused on difference. Uh, on the irreconcilable difference between Algerians and the others, and that included the Pierrois and the French, where basically culture, history, language, uh, religion were deemed to be unsurmountable differences that somehow not only justified nationalist discourse, but also uh, uh, made sure that the Algeria post-independence post would somehow have to deal with those unresolved tensions. And there were also tensions with the Berbers, as we know, there were a number of conflicts within the leadership of the North African star from the 19, uh, late 1920s to the 1930s. Uh, Imam Shaman, number two, uh, with who was himself marginalized, but his views were very clear. I think the uh, Algeria that uh, he saw was one that would recognize the, the cultural difference and varieties within Algeria. And I think they mentioned those very varied the kind of mosaic of population in Algeria as forming the basis of that future Algeria. It was there, but on the other hand, their nationalist discourse was very much hostile to reconciliation as well. So you have this inattention, I think that goes back to your initial points, where there are lessons that can be learned from there. Well, it shows that history seems to be repeating, to some extent repeating itself, that many of the, the, the conflicts that existed within the organization Continue uh, have continued post-independence and uh, to some extent are continue, continuing today, although the situation is, is quite different. Can I ask you one final thing? Yes. This will be a final thing. Um, um, you, you've, you've spoken about diversity and back at the beginning of your talk, you, you mentioned that, that, the, um, that the luminaries of the um, Association de Dunimar set themselves to try to expunge um, rural Sufi yes. Islam, the Islam of the Zawiyas back in the late 1930s. I'm perfectly certain that didn't go away. Um, and um, um, is, is there a tension still to this day perhaps arising out of that? And um, to what extent could people perhaps feel 
well, the French were colonists, but to what extent did people feel that um, Ulema coming back from, from Egypt with uh, with 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 the um, 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 fancy Islamic education had somehow hijacked the local version of Islam? Is that is that resentment still there? So, uh, I uh, I think it's an assumption that uh, is worth making. I wouldn't be able to to answer. Uh, the extent to which this can still be noticed within within Algeria, um, that's something perhaps worth researching. What I would say, however, is that uh, these intelligence reports I've seen um, also feature this tension that existed. You know, the, the Sufi and the Marabu themselves were, to a large extent, uh, complaining, complaining on a constant basis to the French authorities that somehow they were now focusing all their financial needs, support, etc., to uh, encourage the, uh, the ulama, particularly at Obi, to develop his own influence. And I think they felt betrayed, abandoned, and to some extent marginalized by the French authorities. Uh, the French authorities themselves saw them as, as a kind of gradually dying um, religious, cultural and political influence in Algeria. And they saw the ulama in particular, some members of the leadership of the ulama as, 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 as the future. Uh, of Algeria to some extent within French influence, within French colonial presence. Rabbi, thank you very much. Um, just, before I, just before I wrap up the meeting, I'm going to tell you that the next Middle East Centre lecture happens on the 4th of February when Professor Valerie Bunce is going to speak on a rethinking diffusion, 1989, the colour revolutions and the Arab uprisings. Um, so, so come along then, that's next week. Uh, um, and um, I'd like to thank Rabbi again.